Father, we are indeed grateful, and we give with joy to you, trusting you to use these things for your purposes and to your glory. Continue to cultivate in our hearts the joy found in generosity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Continue standing as we come to the reading of God's Word now in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, a mere 30 verses this week. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would do a work this morning to open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear from you, your word. Give us strength to hear. Give me strength to speak. Use this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The church, the global church, the big C church, is the mechanism or the means, it's the organism, if you will, by which God is establishing his kingdom on earth. It's through his people that he is ruling and reigning today. And the global center of the church over time and over history has moved as the church has grown, as it's expanded. And right now in early church history, the global center of the church is Jerusalem. But we see the beginnings of some things happening in this town called Antioch. And we're going to see movement of that global center. The global center and the influence that surrounds it has shaped the world but it has also been shaped by the world. And today we're going to see how the church continued to wrestle with the enfolding of Gentiles. This was going to take some time. God had made it clear there was to be no distinction. But it was going to take some time for this to really transform people's hearts and lives and for them to wrestle through what the implications were. I mean, there were the cultural issues that we looked at last week, the issues of eating and socializing Jews and Gentiles together. They had never done this. But there were also theological issues like would Gentiles have to be circumcised to be accepted by God or were Gentiles second-class citizens in the kingdom? Should Gentiles help out Jews who were in a famine? God would use these and other issues to not only grow the church but to actually shape the church. And God continues to do this throughout history. He uses external issues to force his people to wrestle through implications of theology and to grow as a result. There's a man by the name of Howard Dial who grew up in the Atlanta area. He's my parents' age, mid-70s. Felt a call to ministry, uh, went off to Bible college, went off to seminary, got trained, came back home and began teaching at a school called Carver Bible College. The church that he came from was a well-known church in Atlanta. They were particularly known, I think, for two things. One, their commitment to the Scriptures the authority and the sufficiency and the inerrancy of the scriptures, and their heart for missions. Their missions giving in their day would have equated about a million and a half dollars annually in today's currency. They have a big missions budget. And the church also had a large, reputable school, Christian school, that a number of my friends went to. When Howard returned, he began teaching, as I said, at Carver Bible College. Carver was an all-black Bible college, and the time frame was the late 1960s. He served as the academic dean where he got to know a number of the students beyond the classroom setting, and he befriended one particular student and invited him to church. It seemed like a logical thing for him to do. This work, by the way, that he was doing at Carver Bible College was supported by his church as missions. He invited the student to attend one Sunday. The student accepted And when he came with him, he wanted to join the church. And he was told that he wasn't welcome. He was told specifically that he couldn't join the church. And as a result, not only he left the church, but Howard felt convicted that he too had to leave the church. It took about 15 years before the church came back and apologized to both men. But today that church in its original form is gone. 
It left the area. They sold all their property. They had to get rid of everything. The school closed. And they eventually merged and retained the name. But it's a congregation that's very, very small. The sin of prejudice left its ugly mark. Today we're going to look at three transitions or three movements in the chapter that we're looking at today of Acts chapter 11. The first we're going to see from prejudice to acceptance in verses 1 to 18. The second from ignorance to the gospel to gospel proclamation. And then finally from famine to generosity. As I mentioned, the church at this point in history is centered in Jerusalem. And this is both true literally, that's where the center of the church is, that's where all the apostles are. Uh, We've seen the gospel go out from this region to the north, to the south, to the east and the west. But it's also true in more of an allegorical sense in that everybody was looking to Jerusalem for acceptance, for authority, for confirmation. And we see everything seems to be flowing from Jerusalem. We're going to see that the centrality of Jerusalem, though, begins to shift as we look through Acts, and that global center begins to move north. But for now, this is where Peter's going. After we've looked at what happened in Caesarea uh, last week, uh, and Joppa and Caesarea both, uh, Peter now goes back to Jerusalem. And he's going there to clarify and basically to give an account of what's happened. The word has traveled fast. Verse 1 says they already knew about it before he got there. Uh, When you look on a map, Caesarea, both Caesarea and Joppa aren't that far from Jerusalem, over on the eastern, I'm sorry, on the western coast of Israel. But when he gets there, Luke, Luke uses the phrase, the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And this is synonymous for Luke, for the they had accepted the gospel. They had believed who Christ was and what he had done for them. But there's resistance. Right away, the circumcision party comes at him criticizing. Verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. We don't know that this party was some kind of formal party in the church or if it was just kind of a euphemism for the the Hebrew-Jewish background believers as opposed to the Hellenistic or Greek Jewish background believers. If you understand that Jews had been dispersed themselves for different reasons, some for persecution, some for business purposes, they had developed and they had you know, had families and so forth and developed the, the culture that they were there. They were still Jewish, but they had kind of adapted to that. And the Hebrew or the Judean Jews were, in, in, in the Jewish mindset, the real Jews. So there was a sense of, of superiority here. And these were probably the ones who then opposed Peter and said, what are you doing? You went and ate with Gentiles. And, of course, this was true. He had. Well, he begins to explain, and we're not going to go back through the account because we looked at that last week. We're not going to go back through all of the details, but he begins to explain, verse 4, in order of what happened. But you may wonder, why did Luke, who's writing this history of the Acts of the Apostles, why did he record this twice? We can ask the same question of why he recorded the account of Saul's conversion four times in four different ways. And the reason for both of these multiple accounts is because of the significance of them to the history of the people of God. God was doing some significant things. And of course, the bringing in or the enfolding of the nations, the Gentiles, was significant. And the big point is that God had indeed kept all of his promises to bring the Gentiles into the fold. So the retelling of the story was important for Luke's hearers in his day, and it's important for us as well today. 
And one of the major points of this bringing in the Gentiles into the fold is that there is no room for prejudice among God's people. In Exodus 19.6, God said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The whole point of Israel wasn't to be ingrown or inward thinking, but they were to be a kingdom of priests, outward focused, mediators between the nations and the God who created the universe. He said it even clearer in Isaiah 49. Verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This was God's plan all along, was to bring the hope of the gospel, the story of redemption, to the ends of the earth. Well, God's purpose for his people was never for them to take it on themselves, to turn it into this holy huddle, to turn in the, the, the rules that he gave them into these external measures of holiness, but that's exactly what had happened. They had turned these into these steps of how to be externally holy. And with that had come this deep-seated prejudice that had developed and grown over centuries. Which makes what we see happen in verse 17 so uh, huge, (laughs) such a big deal. This is significant. In verse 17, as Peter finishes recounting what happened in Caesarea... He asks this rhetorical question. If then God gave the same gift to them, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I mean, it was rhetorical in the sense of Peter saying, who was I to stand in God's way? But it's it's really bigger than that. It's who is anyone to stand in God's way? Who is foolish enough to stand in the way of God? Of course, the answer was clear. And God gave, in that moment, the grace of understanding to his hearers. Because in verse 18, 18, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's totally the grace of God. I mean, we're talking years and years and years of deep-seated disdain for Gentiles. And now these early believers were able to just understand that, okay, they've got the Holy Spirit, they're in too, they're with us. It's monumental. Good things that God had given the law, the kosher laws that we looked at last week, had been twisted by sinful people to elevate themselves and put others out. This was not God's plan for the world. If you read through the Old Testament particularly the prophets, you can see God rebuke his people again and again for this. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Wait a second, Lord. Didn't you give us the system of sacrifice? Didn't you give us the order to make sacrifices? And now you're saying that's not what you desire? And God's saying you're missing it. The whole point wasn't the sacrifice. It wasn't just to have a big barbecue. The point was for your hearts to be changed, for you to love mercy, for you to love compassion, for you to love justice, for you to walk humbly with your God. Samuel said it also in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Nothing short of that I've come across in life has driven this point home more clearly than becoming a parent. (laughs) Because isn't that what you want from your kids? 
You, you want them to obey, right? You want them to love you. You want them to care. You don't want them just to do the rules, just follow the rules, just conform to the rules. That's not the ultimate objective if they hate you. You want them to love goodness. You want them to love you. And that's such an image of what God was doing with his people, treating them as children, working with them and through them to teach them these things. In a matter of moments, the leaders of the early church saw that God's plan of redemption was indeed for all people groups and that there was no room for prejudice. God took a broken, sinful thing like prejudice and began healing in the life of the early church. It would take time, and we're going to see it's nearly a decade before the Jerusalem Council meets and formally discusses how Gentiles are to be brought into the church. But God is doing a redeeming work, and we see it unfolding here. The next transition we see, or the next movement that we see in verses 19 to 26, is from ignorance to the gospel proclamation. In this section, Luke kind of shifts the reader's attention to Antioch. This is the direction that the global shift or the global center shift is happening. And I keep using this term, the center of the global church. This is the geographic point on earth that would be equally represented on all sides by believers. And so in the early church, that center of the church would have been Jerusalem. But shortly it's going to begin moving or shifting northward, particularly what happens in Antioch and later in Asia Minor. It's going to begin spreading out. And missiologists have tracked this global center over time. And it has continued to move in a trajectory north and westward, as you might expect, as the gospel went out until about 1970, when somewhere out over the Atlantic Ocean, this global center, this spot on the earth that represented the center, represented equally by believers on all sides, begins this drastic shift back to the east and to the south because God was doing a work in China and in East Asia and the Far East as well as in South America and in Africa growing his church there. It's fascinating to see that. But at this point, Antioch was going to be the next geographic center. Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world, third only to Rome and Alexandria. It was where modern Turkey is, really where Syria and modern Turkey come together. So it was a crossroads. East and west met here. Uh, All kinds of of traffic and transportation moved through this region. And the church had already begun to grow. If you remember back when the apostles realized they needed help logistically and they appointed six men, including Stephen, to help with those logistics, one of the men that they appointed was Nicholas from Antioch. He was a proselyte, meaning he was a, someone who was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and then become a believer that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Luke reminds his readers about the persecution that began with Stephen in verse 19. It resulted in the scattering of Jews throughout the area, throughout the modern world. He mentions that they went to several areas, including Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, Cyprus, little island just over from that in the Mediterranean Ocean, just off the coast of Lebanon and Syria, and then Antioch, which would have been in Syria at the time, today modern Turkey. And in each of these areas, there were Jews. They had traveled there for different reasons. Many of them were there just to do business, and as they were there, they built synagogues. And we see this happen throughout the world uh, at this time, and as a result, there were proselytes, people who had converted to Judaism. There were also the category of God-fearers, 
explained this before. These were people who weren't ready to convert completely to Judaism, but they believed in the God of the Jews, and they worshipped the God of the Jews. These were called God-fearers. As these early Christians were scattered, most were sharing the gospel only with Jews, verse 19 says. And it's, it's understandable why they would do this. I mean, it only made sense in a, in a, in a Jewish context for most. At the time, Christianity and Judaism were still so closely tied together that it was really difficult for these early believers to understand how to even explain Jesus as the Messiah to a Gentile, to a non-Jewish person, let alone call them to believe. And so they had just been speaking to Jews. Maybe they understood Jesus' command to go to the ends of the earth, meaning go just to the Jews to the ends of the earth, because Jews were all over the world. Um, But they misunderstood. They missed the point. In ignorance, uh, in, in their own way, they weren't speaking to the Gentiles. But there were some who didn't know any better in their own ignorance, as it were, um, came from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is North Africa, modern-day Libya. They didn't know any better. And they began sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And guess what? The Gentiles responded. Many were coming to faith. I think sometimes we get so focused on doing evangelism a certain way or doing ministry a certain way that when we come across someone who is just faithfully being obedient to what God has called us to do, loving their neighbors themselves, sharing about who Jesus is and what he's done, being a witness to who Jesus is and what he's done, we look at it and it's, it's like we think it's, it's, it's revolutionary. I think one example of this was the man I mentioned in the beginning, Howard Dial. I mean, Howard was you know, teaching in a, in a Bible college and did what, what many of us would think was a very logical thing. Befriended one of a student and invited him to church kind of in his own ignorance, not knowing the firestorm that was going to be created, he invited the student and he acted in a sense of ignorance. But we can look back through the lens of the gospel and say, he did the right thing. What he did was a good thing. And God used it. In the same way that the hand of God was on the early church, I think the hand of God was on these two men because both of them went on to pastor churches for over 40 years. And God used that. He brought redemption to that. Howard could have easily not done the right thing, let his friend walk away and stayed plugged into the church that had supported and cared for him, the church that he loved. This student could have easily become angry and bitter and said, forget all of this, and walked away. But neither men did that. And God's hand was with them. In the same way, Luke writes in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed. And when the church in Jerusalem heard... They sent Barnabas. Barnabas, remember him, right? Barnabas the encourager. He goes to, again, check out what's happening, but he's also he's the gift of, got the gift of encouragement. He comes in and he encourages them in their faith. It's what he's gifted to do, what he's made to do, and he did that well. But he realized he needed help. And we don't know why Luke doesn't give us all the details. A good amount of time has transpired in this. In this. this is just a snapshot, one historical element in, this, in the greater story. But he goes to Tarsus to get Saul. You remember last time we saw Saul, he'd gone to Jerusalem, fearing for his life. They take him, they get him out of town, they go to Caesarea, put him on a boat, ship him back to Tarsus. That's his hometown. And so now Barnabas goes to find him there kind of have to wonder what was Barnabas thinking, how in the world did he find him, but he found him, and he brought him back. 
And I think what stands out about this with, with Barnabas in particular is the humility that this required. This could have been his gig, his show, his legacy. This is, these are all things that so many Christians, unfortunately, get caught up in. Building a, a kingdom of self rather than seeing the kingdom of Christ as being bigger and greater than them. But Barnabas saw the kingdom of Christ as so much greater. And he knew that, that Saul had a unique calling on his life to reach Gentiles. He knew Saul had gifts that he didn't have. And so he went and got him and brought him back. And they taught together for a year and grew this church up. And then Luke adds at the end of this section that this is where the, the, the disciples were first called Christians. Literally Christ people. They were people of Christ. And most scholars don't think that this was a term they brought up or developed themselves, but rather was a term that was used derogatorily against them, uh, almost to mock them, And because for centuries they didn't use it really themselves to call themselves that. They used the term disciples. Uh, they used the term the way. So this was most likely a derogatory term. But the people from Cyprus and Cyrene didn't know the plan uh, of everybody was only to go to the Jews. They went to the Gentiles, shared the gospel. God blessed it, and the church grew. So God used their ignorance, the fact that they didn't know any better in a sense, and they were faithful to what he had called them to do. You will be my witnesses. And as a result, the church in Antioch grew to the point that it would become a significant city in church history, as we're going to see. The last thing that we see in, in verses 27 to 30, the last four verses of chapter 11 is this act of generosity that can only be attributed to the grace of God working in the hearts and lives of these people. Now, we, when we think of, uh, of a tragedy striking the world and how people are moved to give, it, it's maybe a little more difficult to understand. This is, these were two groups of people that didn't have a lot of love for each other in general, Gentiles and Jews. I mean, Jews and Gentiles, they hadn't been mixing well for centuries. This, is, this is, goes back, way back, you know. Um, Jews had turned God's call to holiness in this external set of rules that they began looking down their noses at other people. And Gentiles certainly felt it. They knew that Jews thought lowly of them. They had been called gohim. They had been treated as dogs by the Jews. So then a prophet comes along, predicts a famine, and when Judea is the region that is hardest hit, why would the Gentiles from the other regions even consider sending resources? It doesn't make sense from a human standpoint, but it's exactly what they did. Verse 29 tells us the disciples determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. They gave willingly, with joy. They gave generously because the grace of God transformed their hearts to overcome centuries of hate. And God used again a terrible thing like a famine to stir his church, to shape his church, to continue the heart-changing work of sanctification in the life of believers and lead them toward generosity to those in need. So we've seen God take difficult things, ugly things, sinful things, broken things, and redeem them, use them, and make them beautiful examples of his glory and grace. Prejudice leads to, leads to acceptance. Ignorance leads to gospel proclamation. Famine leads to generous giving. This is the upside-down nature of the economy of God's kingdom. God, the economy of God's kingdom doesn't make sense from a human perspective. In God's kingdom, the weak are strong. The pers- those persecuted for righteousness' sake receive the kingdom. 
The cross is foolishness to the perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. In God's kingdom, 5,000 are fed with just two fish and five loaves. And elderly Sarah gives birth to baby Isaac well beyond her childbearing years. For Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. My point is that in the economy of the kingdom, we, we just can't easily explain it in human terms. It doesn't plug into our you know, Excel spreadsheets. Pie charts don't capture kingdom growth. God uses the upside-down things, the things that shame the foolish, to show His glory. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's the point. Christ will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ will build His church. I shared with you the story of Howard and the student who was not allowed to join the church because of the color of his skin. Howard went on to to leave that church, and he planted a church uh, in the Atlanta area. It's the church that I grew up in. It's a church that I grew to love. I was born into it, grew up in it. Um, It left an indelible mark on my life, no doubt. Um, Howard taught me to love the Scriptures. He taught the Scriptures. We have differing views on some things, but we both love Jesus and we love His Word. Shortly after Leslie and I married, we returned to that church where I was the associate pastor for three years. And Howard pastored that church for over 40 years before he retired, and he serves as the pastor emeritus there now. That student of his went on to seminary and went on to become a pastor as well. And a week before last, Howard flew out to Texas to preach at his church. Um, Both men faithfully used by God, but God used this student in a a particular way, in a special way. Uh, His church is over 10,000 members, had a little bit bigger footprint. His name's Tony Evans, and he's written a lot of books and been a speaker and so forth. He's a um, chaplain to Dallas Cowboys, we'll forgive him for that, and Dallas Mavericks, the longest standing chaplaincy in NBA history. He's the first African-American to graduate with a doctorate from Dallas Seminary. My point isn't to make much of of Tony Evans or or Howard Dial, because both men would say make much of Jesus. And that's my point in telling the story, that God takes the ugly, broken things of the world, things that are sinful, things that men meant for evil, and God indeed uses them for good. He takes the upside down broken stuff, and redeems it. Isaiah 54, 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the child of the desolate one will be more than the, child, more, be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Only God can do this. Paul said it this way, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. How? How? Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the promises of God are found to be yes and amen.
Jesus came and fulfilled everything God had promised and delivers it to you and to me by faith. So we have a hope in this life that exceeds all of the brokenness, all of the things that go wrong, all of the unmet expectations, all of the things that shatter our dreams and break us down because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have a hope that goes beyond what we see with our eyes. Lord, for so many of us, we, we feel the brokenness. We feel the effects of sin. And our eyes become blurry by these things. And we need you to clear them out with the truth of the gospel and remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. That nothing can thwart your plan that the gates of hell will not prevail, that you indeed will build your church. So clear our eyes, help us to see, give us hope, encourage our hearts. For your namesake and glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.